This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Bruce Gordon is the Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Yale Divinity School. He earned his PhD in Scotland from the University of St. Andrews, where he also served as Professor of History before moving to Yale. In addition to his teaching, Professor Gordon is a writing-researching scholar focusing on the Reformation and early modern history. He has written dozens of academic articles. He's the author of over 10 books, including a biography of John Calvin, a reception history of Calvin's Institutes, a history of the Swiss Reformation. His most recent book, Zwingli, God's Armed Prophet, is a lively work, and it's the topic of our conversation today. Professor Gordon, welcome to Thinking in Public. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, the uh, immediate uh, reason for this conversation is your newest book, God's Armed Prophet Zwingli, published by Yale University Press. Uh, I have to tell you that uh, as someone who uh, who kind of lives in many ways in history, the Reformation, uh, your book took me by storm. It, I, <laughs> I, I, by the way, gave it as Christmas gifts to many of my friends. Uh, it's really outstanding. Uh, you obviously wanted uh. to write this book. I did it. Yeah, there's. I. I. I it, you'll find in the acknowledgments, the slightly rather long uh, acknowledgments, is that um, there's an element that's somewhat autobiographical in this. I found the story of Zwingli by pulling a book off the shelf when I was an undergraduate, a rather bored undergraduate in the library. I, I looked through it and I thought this is a fascinating life. And and um, uh, who? What sort of reformer dies on a battlefield and then? This isn't what I imagined the Reformation to be. And over the years, I spent a lot of time in Switzerland. That became the area in which I worked. But uh, it always stayed with me that I wanted to to tell that story again. And um, just over 10 years ago, I was invited to do Calvin, and I, I, I found that a, a fascinating journey. But Zwingli was always there, and I wanted to come back to him at some point. And the press encouraged me, and one day I just felt it's time to, to do this. Yes. I remember a teacher telling me a long time ago that for every professor, there's a great white whale. Right. Uh, for every academic, there is one great thing that has to be done. And uh, I'm sure you will do many more. But uh, I, I was, uh, was very interested in how you combined, uh, rather necessarily, I guess, uh, the story of Zwingli and the context of the Reformation. And uh, as a Reformation and uh, early modern historian, you make a, a, a very clear statement early in the book when you say that the Reformation could have taken many turns or might not have happened at all. Yeah, yes. This is, you know, I grew up um, in a, in a, with a Reform background which, in which the, the history of the Reformation was, was there in a way. It was the story of the recovery of the church, of the recovery of the Bible. And when I went to university, I studied classics and, and actually uh, medieval studies, which was a very interesting uh, departure for me. And um, I realized the, the Reformation had very deep roots in, in both the medieval and uh, early Christian period. And I wanted to know more about this. I wanted to know how did this movement actually happen? And one of the things over the years, as I've taught and written about this, I realized that, um, you know, Zwingli and Calvin and Luther, they were not the only people who had visions of reform. And the people who are often cast in the stories as the, as the, as the bad guys, depending on your perspective, you know, the Anabaptists, they were radicals, or the Catholics, they were the opponents of reform. But you know, the more you came to, to understand it, you realized that they too had very clear ideas of what reformation might be, or what the reform of the faith might be, what reform of Christianity might be. And, and these, in some ways, were overlapping, but in other ways, they were competing. And you have to look at the particular circumstances of what happened to understand why certain visions of reform prevailed over others. And, um, you know, one could, you know, certainly some people would look at it as a kind of providential thing, but, if, you know, I look at it as a, as a historian. And I realize there, there are many contingent factors in, in what happened, such as the role of personality or right. such as the role of politics, or such as the, the, the power of preaching. There are many different elements in these stories, and 
And that's what I wanted to convey in, in this is that we look at Zwingli, but we have to look at him as part of a range of efforts to change what most people realized was a very bad situation. Yes, I remember about the time I was doing my PhD, Heiko Obermann had mm -hmm. published his work, Forerunners of the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wasn't persuaded in every case of the argument he made. But nonetheless, I, I was persuaded of the general argument uh, that the Reformation did not come out of nothing. Uh, it, uh, it, it came out of a great pent-up desire. Also, uh, seismic changes on the Earth's surface, so to speak, uh, you know, in terms of politics, culture. And uh, one of the things that Zwingli brings to light in, in that, and I'm going to ask you just kind of to, to, to uh, hop, skip, and jump around the story a bit because uh, it, it's such a large uh, issue here. But one of the things I want to talk about is the fact that you would not have the Reformation the way the Reformation happened without this uh, Christian humanism that developed in terms of recovering ancient sources. And Zwingli, to a greater extent than any of the other, the magisterial reformers, re really sought to uh, reclaim those classical roots. Absolutely. I and mean, he is, he becomes a priest in the eastern part of Switzerland, a place called Glarus, very beautiful place, uh, a valley, mountain valley. He becomes a priest, but at that point, a very poor area uh, where many of the young men went off to serve as mercenaries in, in soldiers, as, as soldiers for foreign armies, King of France or the papacy. But he, right from the, he, from the beginning, he is, he is inspired, and the major figure, of course, is Erasmus. But he's inspired as a as a parish priest to to learn Greek. He's already studied Latin, but to take up Greek. Very few people knew Greek in in this period, and certainly not classical Greek. But he's inspired to take that up, and he's a bit of an autodidact. He studies it um, himself. He gets the books, and he studies, and he's increasingly persuaded that this study of antiquity, and this is again, it's very much. He's hugely inspired by Erasmus. The study of antiquity is not something separate from the reform of the church or from the Christian tradition, but is actually something that will enormously enhance that uh, reform. The return to the past is in the service of the reform of the present. So he, he is persuaded that he needs to learn Greek to, to be able to read uh, the Gospels. Uh, he needs to learn Hebrew to, to read the, the Old Testament. But he also is a great lover of poetry. He's uh, One of the things I, I say in the book is that in many ways, Calvin is a craftsman who, who is a builder of institutions and builder of the church. Zwingli is a poet. He, he, loves, he loves poetry. He loves music. We can talk about that uh, later. He writes poetry. He writes music. After the Reformation happens in 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 Zurich, he puts on plays, Greek ancient Greek plays. He stages them and he writes the music. He's up. He he shares with Erasmus this deep deep love of the wisdom of antiquity, and you know, infamously, depending on your perspective, he says towards the end of his life that he expects to find many of those classical poets and writers and philosophers yes. in heaven. I, I want to hold that for a moment, because one of the perplexities of the story is not one you put this way, but you give all the ammunition, all you put all the furniture in the room to come to the conclusion mm -hmm. that uh, Erasmus believed that many of these figures in classical antiquity would actually be in heaven when Luther thought the Zwingli would not. Absolutely not. I mean, and Luther was absolutely, I mean, as others were, but Luther was absolutely appalled when he read this this text of Zwingli, yes. which he put in one of his final confessions before he dies, um, that that salvation would come to these virtuous pagans. Uh, Luther was enraged. I mean, he's already enraged enough with Zwingli by that point, but he was enraged by this. Um, and but but. Uh, Zwingli says this on various occasions, uh, and he he even you know he 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 makes references in in at various points that you know these were you know the he, a tradition that will that will grow in the in the 16th century this idea of Plato and Moses this kind of wisdom these these streams of wisdom uh, which are the working of the, of the Holy Spirit that comes. That come together. He's he's not trying to return to paganism, but he's saying that that there is this uh, spirit that moves through the classical world that you know that um, which is manifested in learning and wisdom of, of philosophy, in literature and in music that doesn't 
stand in opposition to Christianity, but hugely enhances it and gives it uh, a form of expression. And of course, this return to antiquity, the return to the original languages was essential to recovering the gospel. Right. And I, I would say, just given my own historiography, a, as a more classical Calvinist, that yeah. uh, there's a better way to explain that in terms of a proto-evangelium, uh, in, in terms of an anticipation of the gospel, not a return to. Mm. But uh, that was a, that's a live debate. Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm. I mean, Calvin will take a different path from, from yes. seemingly on this point. And, and on many things, as we shall yes. see. Yes, and, and I, some other things, you know. I, I need to be careful to uh, 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 kind of set things up here. Uh, especially for our listeners, just just to remind uh, uh, our, uh, our our friends and listeners that we're talking about a man whose life was roughly contemporaneous with Martin Luther, uh, and yet who was largely independent of Luther. Uh, of course, one's in Switzerland, what, what we would call the Swiss Confederation, and one's very much in Saxony and Germany. And that political distinction is one that we kind of take for granted, but you are very helpful, and, and for different reasons, by the way, and, and part of it is my own Swiss ancestry, uh, which is Anabaptist, uh, uh, just going back to, to, to look at this very fragile history of the, the Swiss Confederation. It actually didn't have any kind of independence until the, the Peace of Westphalia in uh, 1291. So, I mean, that, that's just fairly recent European history by the time you get to Zwingli. And... Uh, and, and as you point out, uh, in, in, uh, in, in the Swiss Confederation, ma made up of these city-states, so to speak, and uh, loosely confederated uh, regions, th there wasn't industry. Uh, agriculture was uh, 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 a, a different issue. Um, and, and so the mercenary service was an industry. And, and so when you talk about Zwingli eventually dying on a, on a battlefield, Swiss was a place of rather constant battle or sending sons to battle. Uh, yes, absolutely. It's, it's uh, a world of, of um, we think of Switzerland as being an enormously wealthy country. Now we think of all the things that, that uh, the image of, of Switzerland uh, creates. In, in Zwingli's time, the end of the 15th century, 16th century, it was a very poor place. Um, and outside the cities, cities like Basel or Zurich or Burn, um, people lived a kind of exist, a very uh, rough existence, many of them in these mountain areas, which were not particularly good for agriculture. It was a largely peasant society. Uh, they lived very close to the land. Uh, Zwingli comes from a peasant family, a relatively uh, uh, well-to-do uh, peasant family, but he, nevertheless, he's very proud of the fact he comes from this. But the Swiss Confederation is not a country like and even Switzerland to, the, to this day remains uh, quite divided into its cantons. But it, in the period that we're talking about, it's very much a loose confederation of states which are held held together. It's not a country um, right. like you would think of France or England. But these cities are uh, are different than what you would find in Saxony or uh, or even uh, in Geneva later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These cities are uh, are churches. Yes. And, and that's something that isn't, uh, I, I think your book helps us to think through that. Uh, it's different than in Germany, different than in France, um, where you have a union of throne and altar. Really, really in Switzerland, and this becomes key to Zwingli, the, uh, the city and the church are the same. Yes. And that's part of his, his I mean, in the medieval world, as we know, it's, it's often very difficult to separate the world of, of of church and what we might call state or temporal authority. But Zwingli's vision is very much that of the, the body of Christ, the, 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 the society is both, the people are both members of the church and they are members of the political body. And whether the, or not they believe this, that, and, and that's of course, one of his controversial ideas. And of course is, is a major issue for the Anabaptists. Uh, but he has this idea that the church is the whole body of of the community believers and non-believers they belong to the visible church and that becomes a kind of hallmark of his vision of reform of 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 uh, christianity it is a reform of both society and church because they're so uh intimately connected so uh th this uh this really puts to the lie uh, and i say this as a baptist it, it puts to the lie the kind of uh cartoonish 
impression of Zwingli that is held by many evangelical Christians, that Zwingli is kind of a proto-Baptist, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's actually the opposite of the case. In, in almost every doctrinal respect, uh, we do, I, I would see him as a, an important reformer, and I appreciate so much your attention uh, to that aspect, but his understanding of the church, and I say this as a Baptist, is, is in many ways from a Baptist perspective, worse than the Catholic understanding. Of okay. <laughs> and, and, and what makes him worse for so yeah. many is that they feel so strongly that he betrayed them. Yes. Because many of those who become like Conrad Grable, uh, right. uh, who are, are part of, they're part of this reform movement in Zurich from 1519 onwards. They're, they're this circle of friends. They're meeting together. They're, they're hearing Zwingli preach. They're meeting with him and others in, in houses, they're reading their Bibles, they're reading the New Testament, they're reading, you know, Erasmus's Greek New Testament. This is, this is part of that. They're part of a group that is uh, visionary and, and ex so excited about the possibility of reform. And then they believe that Zwingli pulls back from them. He, he rejects uh, the idea that um, infant, ba infant baptism is not in, you know, they're, they're, you know, in some ways, very uh, defensible claim, of course, that that infant baptism is not in the in the New Testament. And then he he responds to that uh, issues of the role of government. You know, Zwingli has very quickly uh, connected his reform movement to the rulers of the city there. Uh, so, you know, they they believe that he's conceded far too much to temporal authority. So what we're seeing with the formation of of, of that split, that very painful split in the years sort of 1523, 24, 25, is, is not simply that they uh, have, uh, uh, that he's cast them out for, for being radicals. They believe very strongly that he betrayed them. I think it's really fascinating to think about Zwingli, and, and in your book, you really help us to see this, in terms of his biography. And I mean, he, he, he goes from being basically a son of a rather inauspicious family, uh, to having tremendous ambition intellectually, theologically, ecclesially. Uh, and that ambition is not just to become a priest, but he, he really politically helps work himself into very prominent places like uh, in, in Zurich after Glarus, uh, in, in Zurich in particular. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and yet he's a priest. It, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. I want to set you up to tell this. He's a fornicating priest. <laughs> Uh, actually, pretty, pretty eager in his fornicating, for what we can yeah, tell. Yeah, no, not that repentant. Yeah. Uh, yes, and then at the same time, he learns to preach what we would call uh, a, a mode of exposition that shocks his listeners with its biblical power. Yeah, and so at some point. Zwingli and his church become reformed, but it's not the snap of a fingers. It's the it's the unfolding of uh, of many events. Yeah. And this is this is precisely what drew me to uh, mm. to doing this. He's not, as you say, a cartoon figure, or he's not a cardboard figure. Right. Uh, this is a man of enormous contradictions. Right. Uh, which which. I find so powerful. We've talked about him being a humanist. He's he is deeply in love with learning. He's deeply in love with this uh, notion of reforming Christianity. He has a conversion experience while he's at the Benedictine Abbey of Einsiedeln, where he's uh, a priest. He has this conversion experience, which is you know difficult to get the details of, but he, he talks about where he's converted to this idea that the Bible is the sole authority. Uh, he isn't yet a Protestant, but he has this powerful, and that's what puts him onto a, a, a course where he studies the Bible uh, it, you know, intensively, as well as studying the church fathers. Um, and as you say, he, he, he wants to come to Zurich. Zurich is, is the most powerful place. And he not only wants to come to Zurich, he wants to come to the most important church in Zurich, which is the Grossmünster. He wants to be the preacher there. This is a man of considerable ambition. He campaigns for the job. His friend, Oswald Myconius, who's in Zurich, Zwingli keeps bombarding him with letters saying, how's it going? How's it going? Um, he wants this job. He has ambitions, uh, clearly. So do many other, uh, you know, uh, religious leaders. But he's 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 not, uh, you know, he's not. 
he's not a cardboard saint here. Um, and as you say, he has this record of of uh, sexual involvement, which is hardly a secret. People know about it. Um, now you can you can just you can perhaps try to excuse that by saying, well, it was not uncommon for priests in the late Middle Ages to have more or less uh, unofficial wives and families. Many of the Protestant reformers had clerical uh, fathers. Um, that was not uncommon. But what was uncommon was that he seemed to be relatively unrepentant about it. He, he and and when he was charged with this, he gave explanations that we would find now quite difficult to to accept. Um, so there's he is, and but yet he comes to Zurich he, on the first of January. Uh, 1519, he starts exactly as you say, he starts with, the, he says, I'm not going to use the lectionary of the church. I'm going to start at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to preach it line by line, right from genealogy, right through to, to the end. And that's what he does. Uh, this is before versification in the Bible, but he he take, he goes through, uh, the and this starts a revolution. People are shocked and amazed and suddenly they're hearing the whole gospel of Matthew whereas before they just being heard, heard uh, bits of it this is a man who whose powerful preaching transformed a community but he's in that but in many ways he's no saint no i mean as you said his uh, his uh, fornicating as a priest was pretty well known but he kept his mm -hmm. marriage eventually rather quiet at least uh, yes. for, for some time yeah. i think it yeah i i mean he he marries very quickly he's the first of the reformers to to marry uh he does it clandestinely he does it as a priest um i suspect it was a pretty open Zurich as a secret in Zurich. you know if you go into the old town of any of these cities they're pretty small and people are literally living on top of each other uh i think there were very few secrets uh so he talks about a hint and then they marry uh officially a couple of years later but by that point she's already about to give birth to a child so they clearly you know lived as as um husband and wife for a, a long time uh, but he's the first, he's, you know, he marries sometime before Luther marries Katie. Yes. Let's talk for a moment about uh, the context of the Reformation. We think of uh, the meeting in Augsburg. We, we can think of, of uh, and not to mention Heidelberg, and uh, we, we can think of so many different things. But, uh, but these are real live characters. Uh, we do reduce them to uh, oil paintings on a wall at times or to, to, to titles on books. But I just want to rattle off some names and just have the fun of you responding to Zwingli's relationship with these people. Uh, first of all, to the great moderate humanist uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam. Yeah. Erasmus meant everything to Zwingli, although their relationship ended uh, badly. Which was almost uh, always the case with Erasmus. Yeah, which exactly. Erasmus is uh, friendships often ended badly. Um, but right to the end of his life, Swingley regarded Erasmus as his great teacher. Um, and he says at the end, uh, towards the end of his life, he said, Erasmus warned me against Luther and I should have listened to him. He said, you know, that, that Erasmus was the person who opened up his vision of Christian reform. He believed that Erasmus had taught him the, his uh, understanding of the sacraments particularly the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as a sort of symbolic representation. Uh, he believed that came from Erasmus, was his teacher. Uh, and you know, as a young man, he, he was besotted with Erasmus and he got to visit him once. Clearly Erasmus thought that Zwingli was a talented person. He, he didn't um, leave any traces that he thought Zwingli was that amazing, but he certainly thought he was fair. And he encouraged him, they carried, up a, carried on a a correspondence. Um, uh, of course, Erasmus found it extremely difficult when Zwingli uh, broke with the church, and he believed that Zwingli had gone, like the others, had gone far too far. But uh, from Zwingli's perspective, Erasmus was was everything. And Erasmus would break with Luther, who yeah. uh, with whom he never had that close a personal relationship. No, but a fascinating that, that was intellectual. Never that was exchange. never good. No. Yes. But and my favorite uh, part of that relationship is uh, that uh, Erasmus, who seemed and, and the the use of the word Erasmus is an adjective these days. Or Erasmian yeah. basically mm -hmm. means to go halfway. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know he called Luther, who didn't go halfway in anything, Doctor Hyperbolicus. And yeah. uh, I, <laughs> I I I love that. Um, 
But even as eventually uh, Erasmus would would have to repudiate both uh, both Zwingli and Luther, mm-hmm. Zwingli and Luther for very different reasons. So the second person I want to ask you about is 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 Luther and Zwingli. What a story mm-hmm. unto itself. It's a it's a very long and in, you know depending on how you want to look at it, a very tragic yeah. story. Um, there's a much there's a long and it has a long long history, a very confessional history, often between Reformed and and Lutherans. You know, was Zwingli simply a student of of of, of Luther? Was uh, Zwingli simply a lesser version? of luther this debate went you know goes on for centuries afterwards but it doesn't People's, even fit the timeline pardon me I, i'm sorry you make helpfully clear that doesn't even fit the timeline they're contemporaneous no. he's not he's not luther's student no and and, yes. and never was he clearly uh starts after i mean he he is aware when the luther affair emerges in 1517 with the the 95 theses he's aware at some point that this is going on he doesn't know much about it um once uh, you know, the church starts to move against uh, Luther in sort of uh, 1519, 1520. Uh, Luther, uh, Zwingli is clearly starting to read Luther more um, in, in greater depth. He writes very positive things about Luther. He defends uh, Luther. But it's clear that Luther is not central to, to Zwingli's Zwingli's world. He's aware. I mean, Luther's work is being printed in Basel, which is in, in the Swiss Confederation. It's not very far away. He's aware of it, but there's no clear sense that that Zwingli is uh, sees Luther other than a voice amongst various other voices of of reform. He is glad to hear that Luther denies the uh, the intercession of the saints. He says that you know that's a position that I am. I'm very glad to hear. So it's it's. It's a very indirect path and a very indirect relationship they have with each other until, and and of course Luther ha- had almost no knowledge of Zwingli. There, 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 he seems to have shown uh, no awareness of Zwingli till really till the sacramental debate starts to to emerge, and even when the the Zwingli starts to write about the sacraments, having you know rejected the mass much more emphatically than Luther did. He, he believes, he writes that, you know, we use different words, but we're basically saying the same thing. So there, there's a certain sense in which he he doesn't want to fight with Luther, but it's clear uh, very early on that Luther sees uh, Zwingli as an opponent. He connects uh, Zwingli very much with his hated uh, opponent, uh, uh, Karlstadt, um, who, so he, he thinks that, you know, Zwingli is, is, in cahoots with Karlstadt, he must be uh, the demon personified. And so, um, so Luther takes, and, and Luther doesn't read Zwingli very, very much until much later, but Luther develops an extremely hostile uh, view of, of Zwingli by about 1524. And that really is the beginning of uh, a non-relationship that, that wow. continues until Zwingli's death. They meet once in 1529 in Marburg. It's relatively cordial, but it's clear there's going to be, there's going to be no agreement on right. the Lord's Supper. I uh, have had uh, many glorious opportunities to teach in these very places, to stand and teach in Philip's Castle in Marburg, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. where the colloquy fell apart. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there, it, I'm sure you've been there. There's that fantastic giant oil portrait, uh, again, retrospective of, yeah. of the reformers, you know, around the table. Yeah. But you do feel the presence in that room of the fact that the, the, the theological world was both coming together and coming apart uh, in that room. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and and to follow kind of step by step the uh, the 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 reformers, Calvin and Luther, through the development of their lives with, with Luther, I've been able to do that almost sequentially. And and Luther you know, is backed into the Reformation. He's, uh, you know, he, he calls for a reform of the church. I would argue that in 1514 and, and in his preaching, you already have Reformation doctrine, but he appears not to know it yet. Uh, you know, calls uh, in, uh, for the Reformation of the church. And, uh, you know, the, he's backed into it in, in his various disputations and others. He doesn't start out in 1517 with Sola Scriptura or a justification by faith alone. He, get, he gets backed into that. And, uh, Yet he becomes, he's, I, I, again, I'm going to take any courage away from Luther. I'm just saying that his courage was lived out in time as he came to the logical consequence 
of uh, of the theological convictions he was following. And, and thus, you know, eventually he's, what authority are you standing on? Well, Scripture alone, you know, basically, what, what is this justification? It, it's justification by faith alone. Um, and then Luther keeps uh, Marian art. You know, he, uh, he, he, uh, he allows practices that would never have been allowed in Geneva, uh, much less in Zurich. Uh, he lets people keep the Marian holidays, let them, let them have them. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, what, what, you help in your book to make very clear that from the beginning, Zwingli's just temperamentally the opposite of Luther. Very, very different. Um, I think you, you, you can you can separate them on various grounds. They're they're temperamentally very different. Uh, Luther, uh, Zwingli is not inclined to vilify Luther in this in the way in which you know Luther uh, returned the favor. Uh, Zwingli, I think there was always a certain hope that they could find agreement, though clearly he, he couldn't quite understand why Luther uh, connected the theological arguments to such sort of uh, personal hostility. Uh, he couldn't understand why Luther would regard the Swiss as fanatics and beyond you know, redemption. Um, it's not to say that Zwingli was the nice guy. Zwingli could be very brutal. I mean, you just have to talk about the the the, the Anabaptists. I mean, Zwingli could be extremely harsh. I mean, this is not a good guy, bad guy thing. Um, but they're also the way in which they viewed the world. You 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 mentioned the whole issue of images. Zwingli looks at the the world of late medieval the Catholicism and he sees idolatry in a way that Luther does not. Calvin will follow in that. But, you know, Zwingli sees that the churches have to be cleansed. The society has to be cleansed. Idolatry is very much the heart of what he sees in, in the mass. Idolatry is a central thing for Zwingli. This is not Luther's thing. Zwingli has this belief that the world can be cleansed and should be cleansed. And, you know, divine judgment hangs over society. It has to be uh, it, you know, whereas, you know, you talk about Heiko Oberman, Heiko Oberman gives us this vision of Luther sort of standing at the end of time, those apocalyptic. Swingley doesn't, doesn't think in those apocalyptic terms. He's looking much more to the transformation of, of the world. And that means that both everything from the heart to the churches has to be, has to be cleansed. So they, they are fundamentally very different people. Yes. I think of Luther, um, I think of an invocavit sermon he preached in 1521, you know, and he's clearly calling his students back from iconoclastic acts, including destroying the altars for the private mass, just saying, you know, we're going to preach the word, the word's going to do this thing. Um, and so I, I often, when I explain to students the difference between, and you've made this easier, as a matter of fact, one of the great accomplishments of your book, um, Zwingli breaks the glass and then kind of maybe explains why. Luther gives all the explanation up front and finally in front of everyone breaks the glass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, It's just a different temperament and a a different political context. Uh, Zwingli has a freedom in in Zurich that Luther never had in Wittenberg. Yeah, he does. You know, he, he, um, and this is where you know you can't separate out the politics from this, and of course it's also what's what proves so highly uh, divisive in this is that he connects very early on reform with political power. You know he he is is con- convinced that um, the temporal rulers have a central role in the reform of the church, and that the two belong together. This, of course, is where the so-called Anabaptists will break with him in their whole the notion rejection of temporal authority in in the church, but that means that he both wins powerful supporters, but he also has very powerful uh, opponents. But he connects the movement in a way that Luther does not very closely to political questions right from the start, and that my you know w- would say is both central to his rise and of course to also to his demise yes well let's talk about another figure john calvin uh, in geneva um so i uh, over the years i've become more and more convinced that uh there was more to calvin than uh than many uh 19th and 20th century church historians wanted to present even in terms of personality I, i i i do not think the uh the the austerity assigned to calvin 
is entirely legitimate. But the point is, it's such in contrast to Luther yeah. and uh, and to Zwingli, and was a was a an, an issue discussed in his time. Just look at Beza described talking about Calvin. Um, but um, but Calvin, how does he see Zwingli? Uh, what does he well, think of him? Well, he would have preferred not to see him at all. The, yes. uh, Calvin uh, pretended that he never read Swingley, and he certainly went out of his way um, to never mention Swingley, which so it seems like a strange absence. But there's a, I think there's a good reason for this. Um, there is, without doubt, there is enormous theological and you could say ecclesiastical influence from Zwingli and his generation, such as men like Johannes Ecolumpadius, who was in Basel, um, on Calvin. You have to think about issues of covenant theology, the way the, the arguments that are made about the sacrament, the fact that Christ cannot be physically present in the world because he, as the creed says, has risen, risen and sits at the right hand of the Father. Classic arguments in Calvin, where did they come from? Well, you will find roots of many of them. Now, Calvin clearly develops and expands and, and modifies, but the roots of that is are very much in, in, in Zurich and in, in Zwingli. Calvin is a second-generation reformer. He inherits um, a, a formulation of Christianity from Zurich and Basel, but we're talking about Zwingli. He inherits something that has already been created he becomes, in a way, a custodian of it. He develops it. But he inherits, unlike Zwingli, Zwingli does not inherit this. Zwingli is the person who, in many ways, is creating it. He creates, you know, the idea of, you know, the covenant coming out of his defense of infant baptism, his, his, his Eucharistic theology, his vision of what the church is, the role of temporal authority in the church. You know, Calvin will disagree with certain aspects, but he inherits that. But the problem for Calvin is that he knows that Luther and the Lutherans will never accept Zwingli and the Swiss. And Calvin believes, as a Frenchman, that he has a special role in bringing together the visible churches of the, of the Reformation. He sees himself as someone who can reconcile these people. And he says, perhaps not unwisely, that Zwingli is too controversial to mention. If you mention Zwingli, the Lutherans will simply leave the table. They will not talk. They, they regard Zwingli as the arch heretic. He is the worst of all. And so therefore, Calvin makes a point of just never talking about Zwingli. And, um, and, and then, as I say, pretending that he didn't read him. But right. the reality of it was, was very different. Well, you document that very well and, and tell it very well. But I think another way that, to uh, think about this is that... Uh, just to help our, our uh, listeners to to kind of get into the context, especially of the 16th century, Luther and Calvin understand that the Reformation in their lifetimes is always a fragile thing, and it, it required you know a, a supportive uh, elector of Saxony for Luther. It, it 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 required not only what took place in Geneva in terms of Calvin, sometimes tempestuous, uh, obviously uh, uh, experience there, but the fragility of of Geneva as a city. Um, and along comes uh, Zwingli, and Zwingli is is like a you know a teenager driving a hot rod through the Reformation. It's a, he he is a threat to every uh, concern that uh, that Wittenberg and and Geneva could imagine. Yeah, he's you know he's he's as we mentioned before, he connects reform of Christianity. He connects his you know I think extraordinary vision of of christianity he connects it to uh, political authority and you could even say to military authority in way that calvin and luther would never have dreamt of um he is he is remark i mean his, to his to his uh, opponents on on the um anabaptist radical side he didn't go far enough but for most others he went too far and and he is you know, extraordinarily uh, bold in pressing his cause. Now, you you can certainly say, and I, I think I would say this, that that proved uh, disastrous in the end for him. But, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why Calvin uh, uh, avoided saying much about Calvin, about Zwingli is because he was, you know, as you say, he was um, 
a friend of mine who 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 uh, uh, is in the history department here and doesn't do Reformation history. He said he said he read the book and he said he's clearly the Rambo of the Reformation. Yeah, and that, you know this that's is this better is, than my teenager. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it, yes, I mean in yeah. many ways that's how he was seen. Yes. Well, and kind of saw himself, and, and and again, you got this young man from kind of a nowhere family who all of a sudden is catapulted into both civic and ecclesial leadership, and then assumes that includes military leadership. So, I mean, just tell us, how did a theologian, priest, pastor die on a battlefield? <laughs> yes, and many of his contemporaries wondered exactly the same thing. How did it ever come to this? And I think you know, there's no easy explanation for it. You know, part of it is lodged in the mysteries of his personality, which right. is something I, you know, I, I, I strongly believe that uh, individual qualities, both strengths and weaknesses, play an enormous role in, in this. You know, without Zwingli's charismatic leadership, this reformation simply wouldn't have happened. There was no right. reason in the Swiss city of Zurich, there should be this kind of religious revolution that there was. He made it happen. He drew people together. He also divided people. He was a powerful preacher. His personality was everywhere. He grew up in traditional Swiss culture, which is highly militarized, you know, even even to this day, you know, they serve in the military. This is in in a way that, uh, you know, is is simply part of the Swiss tradition. He, as a, as a young boy, was trained in the arts of, of fighting with swords and armor, as every boy was. And when you look at his language, you know, people sometimes say, well, how did this happen at the end? If you look at his language right from the beginning, there are martial military images, all, you know, images of conflict all the way through. He writes um, a book on the education of the of the youth, which talks about, you know, practice and and, and finesse in, in military things as being part of education. So it's 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 wired into him. Um, but also there's but there's other aspects of it. And one is his absolute powerful um, conviction that the Christian temporal rulers had a responsibility to spread the gospel, not just to defend what they have, but to spread it. But he, and, but even more was Zwingli's unshakable belief that if these people in the Catholic land simply heard the gospel, they would be converted. But these powers like these, the, the church and these Catholic cities and uh, rulers were stopping these people from hearing the word preached. And therefore, they had to be dislodged. They had to be defeated. That was, you know, you could say that was a, a blind spot. It was his central conviction. And you can't understand this, this character unless you understand that he was driven by this belief that if people were simply exposed to the gospel, they would be converted. And therefore, you have to remove everything that stops him. Uh, stops that from happening. So therefore, he believed coming out of the culture that uh, that was going, he comes to be believe that that's going to require military force. And he draws up as a as a preacher who's very closely connected to the ruling authorities in the city. He he sits on their various commissions. He's involved. In, he's not always successful, but he's he's he has he has the ear of many powerful people. He starts drawing up military plans, and he shows that you know that he is actually as a military tactician quite well educated. He knows what he's talking about. He's not just an amateur. And um, and then so he this this military attitude that he takes this makes a, a more complicated story fairly uh, simple. But um, he believes you know he dons armor and and is prepared to engage in in military conflict for the cause of of the word. Now even some of his closest friends thought that that was misguided, but that's what he believed. Yes. With time fleeting, I want to ask you some uh, some short questions here. Uh, why can you not uh, find uh, readily available for sale, as is the case with uh, Luther and Calvin, say the complete editions of Zingli's writings in English? Why, why is that not available? That is, um, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we know so little about him. The translations that are that most of what we have are from the early twentieth century. Uh, they're they're. Uh, 
not particularly great Latin translations, and the English is so stilted and old-fashioned that uh, it's they're not very pleasant to read, and and students don't get very interested in it. And they may, of course, because they're 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 not very the English is poor. They start to think that Swingley is poor, and he's not a very good writer. Um, you're, you're, there were some uh, in the 1970s and 80s. There were there were uh, some more attempts to to translate some of his works. Those were, but they were with very minor presses. They're they're not easily uh, obtainable. Um, I think there are a variety of causes. One is a kind of view that we have Calvin, we don't need Swingley. Calvin just took what, what Swingley did and improved it. He became the major international figure. He became the figure of the reform tradition. We don't really need Swingley. He, he is this. And besides, you know, Zwingli died on a battlefield. That's a bit of an embarrassment. Uh, we, we would prefer to avoid that story. Um, uh, he's very Swiss. There's, there's all sorts of ways in which people have, have uh, kind of averted their eyes, uh, but the you know the major one I think is because there's such a focus on on Calvin, um, and that Zwingli doesn't seem to be that important. What they don't realize is what I was saying before is that how much Calvin actually inherited from from Zwingli. And if you want to go to the source of many of these ideas, you've got to step back beyond Calvin to where they actually came from. Well, it, it just does seem to me that there ought to be some major academic press that would consider it a part of a legacy investment in early modern history, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, yeah. a, a friend of mine is just taking taking up a project of, of translating a lot of Zwingli's letters, which, of course, are a completely yeah. inaccessible source, but an absolutely invaluable source of to finding about not only about the person of him, but the whole culture in which he lived. So baby steps but yes. uh, there's a there's a new german translation of zwingli's works which is very good i'd love to find somebody who could translate that into english that yes. would be very welcome so here's another question where are the zwinglians today well you know uh that's you know they don't very few of them uh would go under that name because they they wouldn't think to uh identify themselves but you know karl bart uh in many ways adopted you know, one one could ask you know, aspects of Zwingli's theology, and I think if you you know if you this is maybe being a bit mischievous, but I think if you you know, went into the reform tradition and asked people what they thought about you know what happens in the Lord's Supper, uh, I think you'd find them moving in a much more uh, Zwinglian direction than in Calvin's uh, language of you know truly eating the body of Christ and being fed by it. Uh, I, I think you know. Sort of flying under the radar, Zwinglian theology has much more influence in the uh, amongst many uh, Reformed than than they would probably even even realize. But you're absolutely right. As a kind of distinctive party, I think that you know people who who uh, claim to be Reformed or, or or use the term Calvinist, there's still a, a kind of creation story that really goes back to Geneva and not Zurich. So I am a Calvinist Baptist. Yeah, from a, a very capital R reformed, and I mean that in the historic sense, uh, a Baptist whose family legacy is uh, very much Anabaptist from uh, from Basel, uh, coming to the U.S. in 1736 and uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and eventually, and 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 there's a debate in my denomination, or has been for a, a generation or so. Uh, about the Anabaptist roots of the Baptist movement. And so there's something we can't quite explain and, and, uh, and uh, historically, and that is exactly how the 17th century Baptist uh, came to, uh, well, and, 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 and you, could, you could send that into the 18th century, but how they came to uh, understandings of, uh, say, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and particularly the Lord's Supper. And, and so, I would just argue that there's there's just no way to explain that without some Zwinglian influence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Zwingli. I mean, you know, famously, the Anabaptists. Of course, they're it's, it's a pejorative name because, of course, they right. didn't believe themselves to be rebaptizing. Uh, but the the radicals, whichever terms you want to to use, uh, they disagreed, of course, vehemently on on the sacrament of baptism, but. Not on the Lord's Supper. I mean, that was not right. a that was not an issue Absolutely. between you know Kubmeyer and and Zwingli and others. The, 
uh, that was not the, they did not fight on that issue. On the issue of baptism, yes, but yes. Uh, the sacra- sacramental theology of the Lord's Supper, there was pretty widespread agreement. Yeah, and such a big issue, and as time is uh, running out here, I'll simply say, uh, uh, Baptists have a very Zwinglian understanding of the Lord's Supper, and the exact, or uh, an exact opposite of Zwingli's understanding of baptism, and the visible church. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, that that's, will have to be uh, continued in uh, further debates. Um, one of the things you point out is how the Protestant liberals tried to uh, resuscitate Absolutely. or to uh, you know, reclaim Zwingli. Yeah, the, you know that that was the the, the last chapter of, of the book is is the many lives of of uh, this historical figure and and sometimes this is a bit like what I did with uh, looking at Calvin's Institutes. You sometimes wonder are they all talking about the same thing because they they can turn it into very different things. Uh, often, often looking at the past and seeing themselves. I think yes to that. Um, Early modern history, military history, uh, the history of the emergence of uh, the Swiss Confederation and its legacy. More importantly, the history of uh, the Protestant Reformation and uh, subsequent developments can't be told without Zwingli. Professor Gordon, we are in your debt for this uh, this marvelous book. I, I just want to tell our listeners again, it's just a, a wonderful uh, combination of, of skilled history and uh, just a very powerful narrative. It's clear you wanted to write this book, and I'm glad you did. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. God bless you, sir. I know you need to get to class. I do, but thank you so much. This was a great pleasure. Many thanks to my guest, Professor Bruce Gordon, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, You will find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking.